Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. She's a librarian, I'm a writer, she's my mom, I'm me. We read things, and we talk about them, and I got I got yelled at in like the last podcast, the podcast before that, because I said books instead of things, because sometimes the things we read aren't books. Uh, but this for this episode, we did read a kind of a book, a comic book. We read Sandman, The Sandman, Volume 7? Volume 7. Brief, Brief Lives, written by Neil Gaiman, obviously, drawn by Jill Thompson, and inked by Dick Giordano and Vince Locke, lettered by Todd Klein, colors by Daniel Vazo, edited by Karen Berger, Lisa Offnager, and Allison, Alyssa Quitney. I'm sorry. This one also has an introduction by Peter Schraub, the horror writer, but it's actually at the end of the Yeah, continues vibe. the tradition of these particular collections of Sandman. Oh, this one also has covers by Dave McKeon on a, like every volume of Sandman. But this continues the tradition of drawing from horror and sort of more literary-minded genre writers for introductions. We've had Clive Barker and Harlan, Harlan Ellison... Right. I'm not... Lissel Guy is the one that I'm the least familiar with his works. I don't know if I've ever even read anything by him. I think he's very... Well, he does sometimes write, or he has written books with Stephen King. He's, yeah, they were like, like those talisman books or yeah, something together. Some, so he's kind of like in late 80s, 90s American horror. Yeah, we, we talked about how I think a lot of the... What these collections at least are doing is trying to position... And I think correctly... Sandman as an outgrowing of that movement. Oh, I think so, definitely. So this volume is volume seven, Brief Lives. It's compiling issues 41 to 49, published in 1992 to 1993. The um, collection came out in 94. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the volumes that it's one story arc. This is mostly the story of Delirium's search for their missing brother, Destruction. And so we had seen Destruction briefly, pun not intended, in The Song of Orpheus. I think was the first time we really had any time with that character. And this is sort of builds on... It, it's I think it's very easy to read The Song of Orpheus as very specifically like a prologue to this story. Because it builds on a lot of the stuff from that, themes of like... Fate and death and family. Orpheus is an important character in this. Destruction is an important character in this. Yeah, I think this is one that's most iconically about the siblings. Yeah, this is a very endless, heavy story. It does a lot to flesh out some of the endless who had been less developed. Delirium is a major character in this who had only really appeared sporadically beforehand. Obviously, Destruction gets a big spotlight. Dream's relationship with the both of them, Destruction's relationships with Despair and Desire are all put on display. The, the two non-Dream Endless that we had seen the most of beforehand, Death and Destiny, both kind of take a back seat right. in this story to their younger siblings. I think it's also interesting, too, because you get to see more about their realms, the different realms, and you mm -hmm. get to see them interacting, and you get to see the backstory about why destruction is no longer there yeah on just like a while we're sort of still talking about this story on like a very like broad 
top level way. I want to give a shout out to something that I think is maybe the most underrated aspect of Sandman, which is, and we've talked about this before, how, like, much, how skillfully and with, Neil Gaiman does a very good job of portraying the Endless as a family. And a lot of times I think the best stuff in Sandman is the family stuff. And I think now that they've all received a fair amount of character development, it's really interesting to look at them because I think it would have been very easy to fall into a very sort of sitcom-y trap of writing the Endless as a family where it's like, Dream is the moody one, Death is the cool one, where they just all have a personality trait. But when you look at them as characters, you see that there are like bits and pieces of each other's personalities spread out across the endless which feels like very realistic to me you could almost make like a psychological family tree and trace the relationship of traits across the endless because it's like as we see in this destruction and death are both like compassionate and have empathy but destruction is self-centered like desire who's moody like dream who's cold like destiny who's voyeuristic like despair who's like you know struggles to express herself in the same way that delirium does and like so on and so forth like they all have this like web of traits that some of them have and some of them don't and they share with each other that like is a really interesting way to write a family and i think is like i think people when they're trying to write about families sometimes fall into the trap of writing them as just a disconnected collection of individuals who happen to be family Whereas I think No Gaiman with The Endless does a good job of showing that, like, your family aren't just the people you are related to. They're a group of people that you're connected to in ways that you might not even be aware of. I think so. And I think I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on when it becomes more prevalent. But what this reminded me of, about this sort of delirium's quest to find her brother, it reminded me of coming from a multiple sibling family this sort of um, dynamic that happens. First of all, people put themselves in roles or get caught in roles, and I think Delirium suffers from that. She has this, um, the family has this concept that she's a goofball and scattered and, and all this stuff, so they immediately slot her in that role. But I think what happens when there's something that galvanizes siblings, like this whole thing about Delirium's quest to find destruction it starts this sort of family conversation, and that's almost what this arc reminds me of. All the siblings get together to talk about the situation of delirium and, and her desire to find her brother, and they all sort of try to deal with it and deal with her. And that's very relatable if you come from a family with multiple siblings, because if something happens, like there's some kind of drama, family drama the siblings react in a certain way. You know, there's this sort of coming together and discussion and, you know, formulation of action of how to solve a problem. It's like a group dynamic, but it's like special because it's for siblings, not yeah. for, you know, friends or coworkers or, you know. Yeah, because it's like. Engineered it, families. Even, even when you have stories where it's like oh, my coworkers or my friends are my real family. It's always going to be a very different dynamic because it's like you and your friend might have something in common, but it's like you and your brother have the same anger or whatever. 
Yeah. And that's always going to be like a wildly different relationship. I think it's interesting that this story, if you strip away all this stuff that's like about a abstract force of the universe abandoning his station and this like creeping sense of impending doom, it is just a relatively mundane story about like the youngest sibling misses the black sheep of the family and ropes her moody brother into helping, trying to reconnect with him and then ultimately learning that he doesn't really want to reconnect. Yeah, and I, I think I think as we're moving through the issues, we'll start to talk about which sibling interacts with another sibling in a certain way. Yeah, I think like you can see, we've seen over time, and it's really crystallized in this, that the Destiny is the odd man out, and the other endless sort of pair off into twos. And so it's like, Death and Dream are the second oldest, and they hang out all the time, and... Despair and Desire are twins, and they're together a lot. And it was like, oh, Delirium and Destruction were together, and then Destruction left. Right. And then we see, like, different pairings in this. We see Destiny and Death aligned as the two, like, who are the most above it all. And we see Dream and Delirium traveling together. It's good stuff. So this volume doesn't have names for each of the issues. They just call them chapters. But they do have these little subtitles that sort of foreshadow the action that's going to be happening. Yeah, when you see them, they appear to be just like word salad. And then as you read the issue, you realize that they're all calling out specific either specific lines of dialogue or specific things that happen in the issue. They're not really titles. They're just kind of like, I don't even know what you would call them. They're just, but they're there. And they serve to mark the beginning of the story of the, each issue. Right. So let's get started with chapter one. Do you want to do a quick recap, or do you want me? Um. Uh, you can do it because I don't remember specific. This is. I- so chapter one starts, um, with the keeper who takes care of Orpheus's shrine, and he's climbing up the hill, and he's going to the shrine where Orpheus is living. And he passes by Lady Constantine's um, tombstone, and you realize that he has a family, and his family has been tasked with taking care of Orpheus from the sand vein, from Morpheus, for his instructions to take care of him. Yeah, we see that at the end of the song of Orpheus. Yeah, so it kind of starts with him, and then it cuts to Delirium, who is homeless and sitting in a in a doorway during a storm, talking to another woman. And then that's when she decides she wants to find her brother. So she goes to this nightclub where she meets Desire. Oh, she meets Death first. No, she meets a woman that looks like Death, who she thinks is Death, but is just some lady. And then she meets Desire, and then she tries to convince Desire to come with her to find her brother. Desire really looks like... The cover of a Duran Duran album. A very 80s sort of, you know. thing. Yeah, like androgynous, but sort of more masculine. Yeah, there's an interesting thing where we've seen a little bit of this before. It might have even just been when Jill Thompson has drawn Desire before. Where Desire is like, there's less cross-hatching and depth to their rendering. They do just kind of look like that like flat pop art style. Which is interesting. I mean, it, it like does sort of get at this idea that like desire is presenting a front. Like they're deliberately making themselves appear unreal and unattainable as a way to stoke people's desire. Well, I think so because once 
once desire convinces delirium to go to his or her realm i i the book uses it which i don't like and feels very much of its time i tend to just refer to desire as they they're they're it's very explicit like i really like desire's introduction in this because when they show up somebody's like who the hell are you and desire's response is well sometimes i'm her sister (laughs) (laughs) okay so they go to their realm their realm and the desire manifests as it looks to me almost like a greek style imagery like you know like an ancient greek kind of style but also dresses like a 1920s flapper yeah i don't think like wait are you you're talking about desire yes i don't think it's supposed to be ancient greek i think it is still supposed to be that like 80s aesthetic but like like vaporwave references this all the time like these like 80s interior design that would have like random marble busts and pillars like around like i feel like it's drawing more on that that aesthetic than it is on the actual ancient greek aesthetic well i think it definitely has like a new wave kind of feel to a new romantic kind of like aesthetic yeah desire is new wave uh (laughs) death is goth dream is like post-punk no wave like new order shit Oh, yeah, definitely. Delirium is like, I don't know, like Manchester early rave, <laughs> sort of like. Ska revival. Yeah. Very strange. It's, and then it Destiny her, wears a rope. <laughs> I really love her depiction in the whole story. The way that she, like, her, you know, her physical appearance changes and the way it changes when she interacts with different people and the way as she becomes more lucid and less lucid her her physical appearance changes and i think it's really clever because it's kind of show like the external appearance of what is going on in her mind which i think is interesting yeah she's also she's very clearly written to be like neurodivergent in some way obviously she's delirium but like i i think there's there's some interesting stuff with her interactions with her siblings where it's like They try to be very patient with her, and then we see each of them, like, not each of them, we see Desire and Dream both break down and become impatient and say something shitty and then feel bad about it, and, like, it feels very real, like, these interactions. Well, I think that's sort of what happens when when Delirium tells Desire she wants to find her brother and and they do not want to go with her. She is sent to Despair's realm. Yeah. Knowing that despair is not going to help her. But I think it's interesting because this is when you get to see where despair lives. And it's like a cloud room that's filled with mirrors and she just watches people. And then I think like watching people's, their desperation is reflected on her as despair. And it's really interesting. Yeah. It's also very much a portrayal of despair as like the god of depression like her realm is like gray and bleak and she's emotion tries to portray herself as being um, um, unemotional but But like we see is that this is the issue where we get the little flashback with her and destruction right right and like we see that she's like got more going on under the surface than she's willing to let on and there's that really sweet moment at the end where which is a recurring motif in this story where destruction kisses her on the cheek and she has like a wide-eyed reaction 
to this sudden expression of affection. I think this this visual description of despair is interesting to me because, okay, she's the twin of desire, but she's the complete physical opposite of desire. Yeah. She's like meant to be, I mean, not even really repulsive. She's just meant to be aesthetically not as attractive she, as desire. She's grotesque in like the technical artistic definition of grotesque. I think it's also interesting because even though she's an adult and she's meant to be grotesque, she still feels babyish. Yeah. And it kind of feels like like there's a lack of maturity in her. But she, we also, as we throughout skipping ahead in the story a little bit, we do find out that like technically delirium is the youngest of the endless, right? But this aspect of desire is younger than all of the other aspects of the endless that we see, right? So then the story I mean, moves on. Despair. I might have said desire by accident. That's where you like you were mentioning earlier the interaction between destruction and despair, where they're they're manifested, and it's like a plague scene. Yeah, and we get dis- destruction manifests as this, like, he's basically just Falstaff. And they're walking around in the Black Plague. And it's interesting because, like, the idea that comes up in this is that, like, oh, despair, you should be totally stoked. Everyone is despairing. And despair is not totally stoked about everyone dying in the plague. And then Destruction expresses this, like, empathy and compassion for her that nobody else seems to and gives her this little kiss on the cheek. And they're like, no one kisses despair, but Destruction does. Yeah, because they see this sort of humanity of her. But it's interesting, though, when all of the Endless manifest in different time periods, they're usually dressed in some variant that's acceptable in that time period, except except for despair. Despair's just always naked. Always naked. Always disheveled, always just black and white. Like nothing. Like Despair's the same in any yes, age. Exactly. <laughs> so she says Destiny's also always looks the same. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But at least he gets to wear a brown robe. Yeah. She's true. just a black and white image that doesn't get anything. Yeah, of a naked person with a uh hook. Yes. ring that she uses to mutilate herself. Well, I it's think it's interesting very too deliberately upsetting image. As she's watching these stories of despair, she's sort of abusing herself. Yeah, but it's a very like idle way. But there's an interesting thing at the end. So just uh what's her face? Delirium keeps talking about this time that it was raining and but it was the vitreous humor inside of people's eyes. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, her and Delirium have this conversation about finding destruction. And Despair expresses that she also misses destruction, but that it would be unwise to look for him because he doesn't want to be found and it could be dangerous. And then um, Delirium leaves and Despair is very deliberately called out. And uh, Trigger warning because this could be very upsetting. She's very deliberately called out in the narration as using her ring to cut her eye open and leak out the vitreous humor. And we see that, like, she is emotionless and implacable, but at the end, that's her crying, right? Right. That's her making herself, doing what she needs to do to make herself cry, to express these emotions that she has a hard time expressing and dealing with. But that it's like, despair doesn't know what to do when despair feels despair. Yeah, and I think that's, she's, despair is kind of like the least fleshed out character. Of the endless, yeah, yeah, I, I think I, so. Destiny, maybe, but I feel like we get we get a little bit hits hints at like 
the what's lurking under the surface of Destiny. Right. And I think it's it's more cut and dry of what Destiny's thing is because everybody knows what Destiny is. But I think because despair can be felt on many different levels, it's hard to sort of flesh out the character yeah. that she is. But I think this this issue at least does a good job of like if not totally exploring her, but like set, establishing the despair like all the other endless is a person who's three-dimensional and like I think this volume does a really good balance between serious and kind of like sensitive issues and then balancing it with like wacky comedy. Yeah. Yes, I I agree. So So then on to chapter two, where it starts with Morpheus, and he is weepy and mopey because his girlfriend left him. Yeah, this is, uh, so if you remember from the previous volume, I don't remember the name of the story, but the one with Marco Polo, when he meets Gilbert slash Fiddler's Green, he's talking about how, oh, Dream had a new girlfriend and she broke up with him and now he's sad and I don't want to be around for that. Or no, he has a new girlfriend and they're walking around inside me and it's... They're being all lovey-dovey, and I don't want to be there for that. And the implication is that that was the beginning of the relationship. We don't see the relationship itself, but this is the aftermath of it. But I thought what was interesting about this is that, you know, he gets dumped, so he immediately turns the dream world into this, like, rainy, desolate place. And all the people who, the the minor characters who live in the castle, are kind of, like, rolling their eyes because they know how Morpheus gets. Yeah, Yeah, or they're just dealing with it. We see, like, uh, Abel, like, just decides he's going to go fishing in his own house, and he, like, stacks up a bunch of stuff so that him and Goldie and the imp in the bottle, which I guess is Azrael? I think so. uh, Can just, like, hang out and not drown in the flood. And then Merv is, like, gassing off. I love Merv. He's my favorite. He's the best. He's kind of, like... That guy at work that's always saying shit when the boss walks into the room. <laughs> like, like he literally gets called out for, like, talking smack on Morpheus. Yeah, and I really like him and, like, it's very simple, but I really like him and Lucian, where Lucian is just, like, you know, a very uptight, intellectual, like, librarian, and he's, like, Dream's closest confidant and right-hand man, and Merv is like, ah, the boss, he's always, he's always <laughs> so sad, you know? I am out here doing work. Why do I gotta break down all these rooms? Yeah, I think that's pretty funny. And I really like uh, the way Jill Thompson draws, like, expression onto his pumpkin head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. He so, feels like, this is a weird thing to say, Merv feels very Jim Henson to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think that, I get that sort of from a lot of the sub-characters. Like, yeah, Even yeah. with Lucian and Goldie and, you know, and the... Um, the creatures that sit at the gate, the mm-hmm. griffin, I kind of feel like those are also sort of fantastical sort of characters that could be in a Jim Henson story. Yeah, yeah. So, the wyvern and... That's the wyvern, the unicorn, and the... Dragon? Is he a dragon? No, the, the, the wyvern is the dragon one. What is the throw? Is it a lion? Or a manticore? It's a gr- griffin? Oh, it's a, gr- it's a griffin, a unicorn, and a wyvern. Or the dragon. That's what the, the three guys are. I don't know if that's a unicorn, because he has wings. I'm showing Nate the picture right now. Oh, maybe he's a pegasus. I thought a he was pegasus. a unicorn. I think he's a pegasus. 
I, I don't think Morpheus would have a unicorn. He doesn't seem that happy. No, I guess You'd not. have to be in a good mood to, like, interact with a unicorn. Also, you have to be a virgin. And we know he's not. Because he's got a son who's important in this story. So, Delirium decides she's going to go talk to Dream and see if she can convince Dream to go. And she just walks right in the front gate and kind of Morpheus is in his ennui. And he just can't be... You know, he's just like slouching everywhere and being very sad and making everybody soggy with his constant yeah. rain. We also find out that at some point after Nada rejected him, he raised the dreaming and turned it into a desert for a thousand years. Yes. So this is a, actually a more moist breakup yeah. for him. He's just turning. He's just making it rain. Yes. And he asked for, he asked for, I really like this like interaction with him and Lucian and Merv. Where he asks for the rooms that she was that the, the his lost love had occupied, destroyed, and then once he walks away, Lucian's like, eh, "You should just destroy the whole wing, Merv." <laughs> like, like, uh, he's not going to be happy if the, unless the whole thing is gone, no matter what he says. Yeah, I, I think they're just tired of listening to hearing Joy Division constantly yeah. and just kind of. So she shows up and she wants to talk to Dream. So they have this sort of dinner party. Yeah, there's a recurring motif of, like, sibling hospitality and eating. Like, Desire offers Delirium food, Dream offers her food, and then Destruction offers them both food at the very end of the story. Yeah, and I think she she gets... I think they're really interesting, these little sort of characters, these, like, chocolate people that she wants. So, she, yeah, she wants chocolate people... Filled with raz, some of them filled with raspberry cream, some of them not. And she doesn't eat them. She makes them like she makes them interact and kiss, and then that upsets Dream because he's going through a breakup. And she's like, "Oh, they're not really kissing." And then as they leave, because of Delirium's touch, they rem- they become animated and make love until they melt into a mess of chocolate and yes. raspberry cream. <laughs> That's very weird. Yeah. And then he just wants an omelet and a salad and a glass of wine because he's upset still. Yeah. The omelet and a light salad. He says specifically a light salad. <laughs> yes. So, so she tries to talk him into it and he kind of is like not really into it. He doesn't think it's a good idea. None of them think it's a good idea except Delirium. Yeah. She's also told that death will say no and that like, you know, what is even the point of asking Destiny? Which is why she ends up asking Dream after Despair. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, he, it's kind of like he, this is what I was talking about. He calls Desire to bitch about Delirium bugging him. Yeah. You know, they have this sort of interaction where he's trying to get people on his side, but they, they really don't care. No, but and like, then you wh- see, why would you? If you had to deal with Morpheus all the time. Especially knowing, I'm sure every sibling knows he's going through a breakup yeah, and they don't yeah. want to deal with him. It's like when you get that call and you're like, ugh, I don't want to hear about somebody else's divorce this week or whatever so but i think the most interesting part of this this issue is the sort of um it goes back and it shows you this scene with destruction and i guess at the time she was delight yeah it's like she seems to be transitioning into being delirium she's changing and she doesn't know into what or what to do and he comforts her in that moment Here's what I don't understand, not to get too much into the spoils of what happens next, but this is the question that I have. So, 
she was originally delight. Yeah. And apparently she was like a normal kind of construct of a beautiful girl in a long gown. And then she transitioned into being delirium. Yeah. And it's... Okay. But let me finish this. Okay. So later on, when destruction is talking to death, he reveals that he, in his leaving, takes his sigil and his crying pool because he doesn't want a different manifestation of himself to become destruction and have to live with it. Yeah. So some of them can just leave mm-hmm. and some of them can leave and leave their, their sigils. And then another manifestation is automatically born that I mean, becomes that. So why did, why did the delight, make a choice to become delirium it doesn't seem like it's a choice it seems confusing i think the idea is it's never really explained we get we get like a some hints at it here and there there's a part later on where they're talking to destiny and she kind of like uh big times him and is like there are things you don't know and like i know why i became delirium and you don't know that and like so stop trying to like patronize us But, like, I think the idea is that, like, this is... What happened to her is different than what Destruction was afraid of and is different from what happened to Despair. Because it isn't... I don't think it's, like, another person or aspect didn't become Delirium. I think it was this, like... I think it was just a... Maybe just a process of growing up and realizing that the light is not an overwhelming concept... And it, in fact, falls under the subcategory of delirium. It's just a good kind of delirium. I think... Or a pleasant kind of delirium. That makes sense. I think that from what I'm seeing after reviewing this series and kind of already knowing that American gods exist... Oh, this is absolutely the prototype for American gods. Well, that's what I'm saying. This is like sort of the fledgling thoughts that are being worked out in Neil Gaiman's mind. You see that later on with the travel agent who actually turns out to be a demigod. And you see that like when, when they go to, to start to look for destruction and you interact with all these other gods and um, creatures, you know, immortal creatures. This sort of concept that he has, like that become, later on becomes American gods and maybe like Anansi boys or, you know, that sort of concept of what happens to gods if people don't believe in them. And I kind of, like, wonder if, like, what happened when Delight became Delirium might have not been a fully formed concept that became something. And it sort of lingers in Sandman unresolved. Because when you want to know more about what was the impetus that made Delight turn into Delirium. Yeah, no, I I would. But I, I, yeah, no, it's definitely left unresolved. I would be interested to see if he would ever want to go back. And explore that because we've seen him go back to the Sandman world a couple times since the series ended. He did the Dream Hunters, he did Overture, and he did the uh, what is the there's that collection that's different stories about the Endless that I cannot remember what it's called. And I think like Ocean at the Endless end Dreams, the, maybe. Well, Ocean at the End of the Lane is almost a hundred percent like a kindly one story. I, I refuse to believe that Ocean at the End of the Lane does not take place in the Sandman universe. It's, it is a Sandman story, as far as I'm concerned. No, Those I, are the kindly ones. Like, there's no way, and there is like literally a rogue dream in that. Yeah, 
I think what's interesting too is this depiction of destruction is he really looks a lot like kind of like what people think that Odin looks like. There's a lot of yeah, I also Thor like Yeah, definitely or like, you know, like um Vulcan. He kind of has like that sort of really masculine, really buff and like beefy kind of like Roman depiction of a god kind He's of huge, thing. Huge muscular dude with a well, in the past he has a big long red beard and then we see him in the present He's shaved it, but he still has long red hair. And, like, it seems like he's probably really loud. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely, like, a beefy guy. But they, they, part of the thing with him is this idea that, like, which they bring up a lot, is that, like, destruction... In the same way that we were like, oh, or I was like, delight is just a kind of delirium. Is this idea that, like, destruction is just a kind of change. I think that, that makes sense, because if you think of anything... That's really good that you like binge on and it, it, there's a point where something is so great, but it passes over to the grotesque. Yeah. So like if you can eat all of the chocolate that you want to eat, you mm-hmm. feel gross afterwards. And Even kind if of, you're a talking dog. Yeah. It's foreshadowing. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like, that makes sense that delight could become delirium because if something is so great... It has to become weird and unpleasant and, you know, you feel a different way after you have too much of it. Yeah. Well, it's also, like, this idea that, like, I know he's a scumbag and he sucks. But, like, there's this Lars von Trier quote where he's, like, the only rational reaction to the world is depression. So there's this idea that, like, a feeling of delight is always going to require some level of detachment from reality. And Delirium's whole thing is about, like, being detached from reality and like reality breaking down, which is I think part of why her relationship to Dream is so complicated. Because as we destruction says later on in the story, Dream sort of exists to reflect reality or to define reality. Yeah, that's true. So Dream agrees that he's going to help Delirium, but and then everyone they, says it's a bad idea. Yes, but then he decides they have to go in travel into the waking world. I don't know if it's mentioned in this issue or it comes clear in the other issue, but Delirium has created this list on the back of an envelope. It comes up in this issue, I think. Of, the, of these people that she remembers Destruction being friends with. And she convinces Dream to go and find these people. Yeah, so on the list are the lawyer, the alderman, the dancing lady, and Etan. Etan. Yeah, so the the next chapter, chapter three, starts with this sort of story about a lawyer who is, he's thinking about like the smell of a woolly mammoth. So you start to realize that he is like not immoral, but he's been around for a really long time. And as he's walking down the street, he gets murdered. He gets killed by a building collapsing on him. And then death shows up and he said, you know, oh, I, you know, I did really well. He had like 15,000 years. I've gotten so much more and death tells him that you got the same thing that everybody gets, which is just one lifetime. So no matter how long your life is, you just get the yeah. one. And there's a, what, what do you think is the relationship between these immortals and Hob? Because they don't really feel like the same thing to me. Because this guy does just die. Whereas Hob's whole deal is that he's like, um, like the, it seems like a weird thing where it's like these people seem like, well, some of them are gods. 
But like this, the lawyer dude seems like he lived because he was holding on to life, whereas Hob lives because he's rejected death. Well, I think it's a variant of Hob. Yeah, like that. There are certain people that interact with the endless and can make almost like so. You don't know if he had some kind of agreement or some kind of connection to destruction that just kept him going. Because he seems to die in a very destructive way. Yeah. I don't think he's a god, right? He's not a god, right? No, I think he's just sort of... A caveman? <laughs> became a lawyer? Who became a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's so funny when... And then they decide to have to go to the travel agent because they have to make, you know, plans. They have to fly or whatever. They can't just show up. Which is very strange, but it makes for some comedy, I guess. They gotta go through the wake. I think the idea is if they were just gonna teleport somewhere... It would require them passing out of the waiting world and into one of their realms and then back out again. And Dream doesn't want to do that. He just wants to travel through the waking world. Yeah, and I think this character is very interesting. Faramond? Faramond. Who's now living as Mr. Pharrell, who's a travel agent. But he seems to be some type of minor deity that has to deal with transportation. And he's kind of like depicted as this sort of 80s low level but in his mind high powered executive he's always talking on the phone he's demanding his faxes and he has a secretary and then dream is trying to convey to the secretary that he needs to talk to this pharamon he doesn't know he's mr farrell now and there's this kind of comedy miscommunication going on yeah there's this like whole sequence where dream and delirium are in uh, they're like in the waiting room and they're trying to like get him to come talk to them and like they're both being really weird and Dream is being a dick because he's a dick throughout this story because he's mad about his breakup and Delirium starts making little frogs and the way he gets Fairman's attention is he tells this, the receptionist to tell him that they drank wine together in Babylon. Right. And then she thinks that Babylon is a nightclub. But I love this depiction of him where, like, the scene, he's got, like, this red suit, this kind yeah. of, like, red late 80s, early 90s suit. And he's got, like, a like a desk phone in one hand and a gold cordless phone in the other hand. And he's smoking a giant cigar. And he's, like, trying to make these business deals. You yeah. know? And he's an interesting figure because, like you said, he's he doesn't really have any power into himself in this role he just facilitates the movement of other powerful people and then as we learn with him in delirium other power more powerful beings yeah so he arranges for dream and delirium to have a driver who's also their escort who's going to take them to the places that are on the envelope that delirium has yeah well first they gotta go on a plane which is yeah but I think the weirdest part, it's sort of really unresolved, is this whole, like, little mini story about Etienne, where, like... Yeah, that just kind of gets dropped. She... She we, just sort of jumps out the window and runs away, and then you never see or hear that story line again. They mention later on, once they've learned out of Leeds, that she's probably in one of the far realms, and that's the last she's referenced. And then she ends up just sort of going to the Walmart and buying a new outfit, and then... Yeah, and then we don't see her again. Yeah, and that's it. That's kind of weird, because it's kind of like a... It's uncharacteristic to not have a loose end. Yeah, know, but that also sort of, of happens with the alderman. Like, he 
he just kind of goes away. Like, I think there's just an idea that these, these people have just, like, they've seen, since the impending doom, and they've slipped out of, you know, like, a space that they can be found in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then it cuts, like, abruptly to destruction, and he's, like, living on this, like, Mediterranean island, which kind of really, if you're even... A half-ass detective. If you're Fox Mulder, you could have figured this out by now. He's on some Mediterranean island, and he's got a dog, and his dog can talk. And he's, like, exploring his creative side. He's painting and writing poetry. And he's bad at all of it. And he's bad at all of them. He's got his flouncy shirt on, and he's talking to his dog. And Yeah, and his dog is very critical of his work, and it's, like, this wisecracking... Talking dog named Barnabas that he's friends he's with on this definitely island. Definitely like an intellectual snob, that dog. Yeah. I was just always ima- I was imagining um destruction being played by Tom Hardy. And I was imagining the dog being voiced by Stephen Fry. Oh yeah, definitely. So there's this rumbling and then Destruction realizes that he's getting a message through his Scrying pool. Scrying pool, which is his warning system. But that's when you realize that he didn't just walk away from the Endless. He took all of his Endless paraphernalia and he just chose not to interact with any of them. Yeah, yeah. So he still has his full powers as destruction. He still has the means to communicate with his other siblings. He has their sigils in his room, but he just chooses not to go in there. The door's locked Mm. and he has to make a conscious effort to unlock it. Yeah, yeah. So then it cuts again. So that's sort of like just a small like interlude. And then it gets to the comedy gold of the issue, which is Dream and Delirium are on a commercial flight. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. And she's sort of almost more childlike at, in this depiction. She's like, a, she's even smaller. Yeah. And she's sort of, so then Dream, of course, in his, weird way tries to interact with a human child and yeah she tells him about her dreams and then she asks him she talks about how sometimes when she has a dream she can fly in it and she's asking him and she knows it's not just that she is flying but that she knows how to fly in the dreams and she asks him when i that happens am i remembering that i can fly in the dream and forgetting when i wake up or am i just imagining that I know how to fly. And Dream says, sometimes in dreams you do remember, but you'll always forget when you wake up. But I think it's interesting because he treats every human the same way. If it's a baby, like baby Daniel, all the way up to an adult, and even this young girl. He just talks to, he's like you, he just talks to every living being like they're adult people. Yeah, yeah, he also does it with animals, too. Yeah, yes. When the dog, way later, way later in the story, when they're having a conversation and Barnabas is there and he doesn't want him to be there, he's like, wouldn't it be best if your compatriot was not present? <laughs> yes. Not like, hey, can your dog not be here? <laughs> but of course, you know, it has the distracted mom who doesn't realize that there's like this weird endless, you know, filling his daughter, her daughter with this sort of high concept philosophical information they touch on that idea that like everybody kind of knows them because those concepts are universal and like we all experience them because she talks to one of the uh the attendants and she's like 
are those people like rock stars or something? Because they look really familiar. And the yeah. other person's like, yeah, they do look really familiar. But I thought it was interesting that the child wouldn't talk to Delirium because she seems more childlike and whimsical. But instead she talks to this sort of stodgy, uptight but dream she, who's going through a breakup. So he's even more morose than usual. But she wakes, we, when we first see the kid, she's woken up from a dream. So she's like yeah. familiar with him in a way. She knows dream. She just She was just talking to him and now she's talking to him again. She just happens to be awake at the moment. So I think this is sort of like, this is the kind of like comedic relief part of the story. So they get off the plane and they meet Ruby, who's their driver. And they have this like really like inappropriate car. It's like, yeah, Fairmont is like, (laughs) apparently said that they wanted something like old school. So they get them like this antique roadster. Yes. And like Ruby has, is wearing like a driver's hat and goggles and she's driving and Delirium wants to drive but Dream is like, no. Yes. You can't. No. Which is like, yeah, probably the best choice. Don't let her drive. Yeah. So they're going to go on this road trip to find. The, we're going to find the lawyer the first. The lawyer. Which we, who we already know is dead because he was crushed by a bunch of bricks. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of, it kind of pushed the storyline further but did it in sort of a comedic way which i thought was interesting yeah yeah so now they're like they're in the united states they're in america and they're driving in this little roadster and they're going to meet the lawyer and they have ruby and then that's how the issue ends this is kind of the star trek four of sandman yeah (laughs) so then chapter four starts and you meet the alderman who I, i like this character he's interesting yeah and i think it's almost like etienne he knows something is happening, so he chooses to turn himself into a bear. Yeah, he's just sort so of So that like, no one can find him. Um, he's like a... Is he, he's like Siberian, I think, right? I don't know. I kind of got this, like, impression the way that he was dressed and the colors of his outfits that he might have been, like, lap, from the Lapland. Oh, yeah, Or yeah. something like that. I think the idea is he's older than the Laplanders, but he does reference their, like, beliefs and stuff. Like, right. he's clearly near them. So he's like this old sage mystic figure and he feels the the something coming for him. So he takes off his clothes and puts them in a big pile and pees around them and they That's turn into That's very specific that has to be done. He yeah. has to pee around his clothes. This is one of those things Neil Gaiman loves to do where he just does a very thorough uh like study of someone doing something ritualized. This comes up in like a ton of his work. And like, it's not even like he is explaining the ritual. He's just like, and then this person does this, and he does that. Like, ritual is super important in in Neil Gaiman's work, especially in something like Sandman that has these you know mystical overtones. So he pees on his clothes, and they turn into a pile of stone, and then he turns into a bear, and he instructs his shadow to take his place and be him, and he will be a nothing bear without a shadow. And then the guy's clothes turn back into clothes, but they were stained with bear piss. And the shadow turns into a doppelganger of the guy and puts on his clothes and walks off. But see, that's the kind of thing where even if Neil Gaiman made it up, it seemed like it could possibly be like... like It feels real. Like he clearly yeah, understands... Like, it feels like it could be like the mythology of some culture. Because you have a bear that's walking with the shadow of a man and then he has to rip his shadow off. I mean, it seems like that could be like... Maybe a myth in some like Native American or First Nations country, you know, kind of culture. 
So you kind of think like it could be like a legit thing that he's referencing, but then again, it could be just something wacky that he made up. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things with Neil Gaiman's stuff. This comes up in some of his other works where he's clearly studied a ton of mythology from lots of different cultures. And like a lot of times his work has like very specific, very um, accurate references. And then sometimes he uses the knowledge he has of mythology to make up things that feel real but aren't because like again a lot of the big themes in his stories are like it doesn't have to be doesn't have to really happen to be true yeah um but because like um the i referenced the dream hunters before which for people who don't know we might cover this on the show at some point but not in the immediate future it's a novella illustrated novella he wrote that takes place in the sandman universe where dream is like a minor character in it um and he has said at some point that that was based on a Japanese legend. And then that turned out to be a troll. <laughs> he had, in fact, made up the whole thing. And there is no source for the legend he referenced. But it feels real because he clearly did read and research a ton of Japanese folklore and mythology before coming up with his own riff on that. And I'm sure like there's a discussion to be had about cultural appropriation and whatnot. And I'm not the person to have that discussion because I'm not a cultural anthropologist. But I don't know if Neil Gaiman could be accused of cultural appropriation because he is interested, his overarching interest is folklore and mythology. And he is interested in every culture's version of that. Well, I'm just saying there's something a little fraught in a white person making up a story and saying that it's from a non-white culture. But yeah. I don't. I don't think that that's. Is like, he make? Wait, there's a difference between making up and writing. But he said I mean, initially you're... that it was based on a real legend, and it turned out that it okay. was completely fiction. I don't think. I don't know. It doesn't seem that bad to me because I reading the story it clearly like. Like I said, he clearly put a ton of work into the research, but like, I would not begrudge someone being upset about that. I think in other instances, it's, it's a different thing. But I was just talking about that the Dream Hunters specifically. Oh, okay. So, to get back to the storyline, uh, Ruby takes Dream and Delirium to Bernard Capax. That's the lawyer's name. Yeah. Takes him to his house, and we find out that he's dead, and his son is going through his effects trying to make sense of his demise. And then inside our proto-American gods, we get, like, ten pages of proto-Anansi boys as we find out that... Bernard's son, Dennis, I think yes. is his name, has, since his father's death, discovered all of this evidence of his other life and all of these gold cougarons and passports and drugs that he had clearly, like, stashed away for the inevitable moment when he will have to abandon his identity and find a new one. And I he struggles to reconcile his self-image and his image of his father with this newly emerging image. And it's like, yeah... Pretty clearly a lot of the themes he's going to pick up on in a Nazi voice. I think it's interesting, too, because his son thinks that he's just this dopey, nerdy lawyer. And he yeah. finds out. It almost seemed to me like almost he was trying to sort of create a character that could possibly be a spinoff. I mean, you have this. And then at the end of this whole series, you it goes back to Bernard's son. And you see him, like, cleaning up. And he... Is burning all these like delicate papers that he doesn't want people to see, but he puts the passports in his pocket and says something like, "You never know when you're going to need a new identity." So maybe his son either is figuring out what his father was, or he may be the same way, or there could be a possibility that he's creating some kind of character 
that could be a spinoff, but he never finishes it. Yeah, with like that and the Alderman thing being unresolved and the Itan story being unresolved, I feel like you can... I wonder if at some point there was a plan to make like a spinoff comic called like American Immortals or something like that that just became American Gods and those plot lines were left unresolved because that story evolved into something completely different. Yeah, because I think it's the only character that they're looking for that gets a full resolution is Ishtar. Who's also very clearly a prototype of the Belit character in American Gods. Yes. So then they check into this sort of rundown motel and then you get this sort of intro into something about Ruby. You learn a little bit about her life. She wants to be rich. She's a virgin because she wants to have a white wedding. She had to break up with a dude because he had bad credit. She's it's like a very brief, uh, like insight into this character. She's a lot like Ken, yeah, from early on. Like it's that same idea of like a person who is motivated by like money and appearance, but it, it, less so than Ken. Like I don't think the story really judges Ruby. It's just like yeah, some people want some things, and this happens to be what this person wants. Yeah, and then delirium. Makes a mental connection with a dancer named Tiffany, who becomes important later on. And she's trying to find Etienne, and then... She's trying to find Ishtar. Ishtar. The dancing lady. Yes, that's the, that's the dancing lady. And then, I guess, Dream decides to take some time to check in and see what's going on in the dream world. And he has a conversation with Lucian about how's it going. And then... That triggers in his mind a remembrance of his interaction with destruction, which takes place, I guess, during the Enlightenment. Yeah. We got to see our boy, the Corinthian, again, very briefly. He looks great. He looks like Robert Plant wearing some kind of, like, green... Yeah, a big curly powdered <laughs> wig and little little sunglasses. <laughs> little, like, old-timey sunglasses to hide his mouth eyes. Yeah, no, it's great. It was great. I was surprised because I had completely forgotten that he shows back up in that. So it was kind of like, oh, the Corinthian's here again, you know, but he obviously ruins the mood by being, it's by being orangutan's the- eyes. Yes. So this is like, this touches on a lot of the themes that had come up in um, the distant mirrors and whatever, the, in the previous volume, this idea of like the conflict between reason and whimsy and like story and mythology and we get to see Destruction offer a counterpoint to that idea. Like, Destruction is very pro-reason and learning. And he he's very interested in, like, change and what people can create once they, like, understand more about their world. And he, like, mentions uh, Isaac Newton. And he takes Dream to the Invisible College to see a guy who's dissecting an orangutan. And... Yeah, it just, I think it just sort of, like, it sets, it calls back to and sets up these themes of, like, change and development and, like, can the endless change, is dream changing, is dest- has destruction changed? I think it's interesting that it actually takes place during the Enlightenment because destruction is more open, like you said, to these new ideas of, and he has this sort of different view of dealing with humans than dream has, and he's very much concerned with the concept of free will. And then later on when he decides he wants to leave, he wants Dream to understand that this is a decision that he has made because he himself also has free will. 
He doesn't have to serve as the endless. He has the choice to leave if he wants to. Yeah, we also see that with his interaction with Orpheus in the Song of Orpheus, where he's the one that's like, even though Orpheus's path ends up being ultimately self-destructive, he's the one who sets him on it, who like rebels against the, you know, Dream very much sets out this like, this is what you do, you're alive, you mourn the death of a person, you move on, and destruction whether or not it's a good idea, opens up the, like, well, there is a choice you can make and, like, allows Orpheus to make a choice. Yeah, because he doesn't actually say, Orpheus, there's a choice, but it's a bad one. He just says... You can do do this. Yeah, do with it what you will, and he does. So I thought that was interesting. In a way, though, destruction is kind of... Destruction... Attitude towards humanity in the past is a lot like what dreams attitude toward humanity is becoming over the course of this story like he's more like open and jokey but like he feels like um destruction in that flashback feels to me a lot like dream like talking to marco polo and stuff like that right right except dream will denies again and again that he's changed at all of course, because that he's obstinate about his yeah he's self awareness very pompous. Everyone, as characters continually point out, Dream is incredibly pompous. So after he goes through this interlude with destruction and destruction mentioned flames, and that sort of brings him back to the waking world where there's a fire. Yeah, and then for some reason, I have no idea why, but he's depicted wearing almost like a Dragon Ball Z outfit. And he has, like, the Goku hair, and he's, like, in the flames. It's very weird. It's one of the most, like, deliberately fantastical outfits he yeah. wears. Because, like, a lot of times we see him either in totally normal, period-appropriate person clothes, or we see him in his robe, which is just, like, a vest. Other artists draw us just, like, a vest, shapeless form. I think what's interesting is when Jill Thompson draws him not in people clothes. She draws him in definable but fantastical clothing it's almost like it's a mashup between the enlightenment period correct outfit he was wearing and his endless robe yeah and then sort of part of it is like waking world clothes so it's almost like maybe when the firefighters see him he's not fully like aware of how he's manifesting himself yeah. Because it's supposed to be, you see Dream manifest it in a way that's most relatable to you. But we also know but that a, he can choose his appearance, because he chooses exactly. to wear the trench coat when he talks to Constantine. Right. That's what I think's happening here, because the firefighter would not see a person in a fire dressed in a Goku outfit. Yeah. So it's almost like he didn't have time to fully manifest in the, in the way that he wanted to present himself. But it is a really outrageous outfit. Yeah, it's a super dramatic... We might tweet it out. It's a super dramatic (laughs) panel of him engulfed in flame. He's looking like Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII. Exactly. He definitely has this sort of anime, high fantasy, avant-garde outfit going on. So then he says, oh, okay. So then, then they realize that Ruby is gone and Delirium is a little bit sad because I guess she has a connection with Ruby. She seems to make connections and friends and kind of um she's very empathetic to the people and yeah the creatures because some of them are not human that she meets and i think she feels some kind of 
you know, in the brief interactions we saw with her and Ruby, Ruby was like another person outside of her family that treated her with like patience. Yes. Who wasn't just like immediately exasperated or terrified by her, was like willing to seriously consider and answer these wild questions that Delirium is constantly asking people like, oh, what's the word for when, like she, there's this interaction when they're on the road where Delirium keeps doing this thing where she asks what, what is the word for these complicated concepts that like there are not words for? And then she does one of those and it turns out that what she's asking, the word she's looking for is change yeah. in that moment. And, and Ruby participates in that interaction. We also, we didn't talk about it, but there's this part when they're going to meet the lawyer where Destiny, I mean, uh, Dream and Delirium are talking, and Dream mentions that Destiny is blind. And Ruby's like, I mean, love is the blind one, right? Like, you're wrong. Like, love is blind. But I think that's the thing. <laughs> I think that's a weirdly a, an insight into Destiny's character. Like, I think the internal conflict inside Destiny is that Destiny has no free will and is aware of every choice that everyone is going to make and everything that's going to happen. But also, like feels an overwhelming amount of love and affection. We see Destiny again and again as the one who wants, who even more so than Delirium, wants the family to be together. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a conscious choice not to have one of the Endless be depicting love. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of like hokey, but it's almost like we're all love, or that yeah. all of the Endless in some manifestation have an, the ability to love or be loved or to, to project love. They're just all really, really bad at expressing it, except for destruction and death. Yeah, which is weird, because they're too... They seem like the most negative aspects. Right, right. But I think we talked about this. Neil Gaiman, it's almost like Terry Pratchard. His, his view of the concept of what death is, is always slightly optimistic. Yeah. And I think that's sort of... That's why she's manifested in... The way that she is. We talked about that in earlier. Yeah, it's like this idea that like death comes for us all and why would it if it didn't love us? And also that like um that line from that Discord line that always makes me tear up a little bit where death is like, What can the harvest hope for if not the love the care of the Reaper man? Yeah. And I I I like that because I kind of feel like that Well yeah, we in a lot of cultures a lot of mythology and a lot of belief systems death is a beginning of a journey yeah so i think it's it's more optimistic and more hopeful and sends a message to people who are looking for something to relate to that there is not this finality that comes from having a character that is just the end of your life yeah she's not the nullification of existence she's just this final step you know like um we talked in the when we discussed the first volume about how important this conception of death and the the Terry Pratchett's depiction of death were very comforting to me in the wake of the loss of my father. Yeah, and I think that I think it it would be that for a lot of people because yeah, it's imagine. almost like a positive. It's almost like a um, either like a Buddhist or maybe a Tibetan sort of circle. Yeah, you know, of life or some kind of wheel. You know, we talked about Siddhartha and the wheel and all of that stuff. But let's talk about chapter five. This is my this is the probably my favorite issue in the whole entire series. Really, I mine is still men of good fortune. I love this sort of depiction of Ishtar and the 
Yeah. The so- strip club and the strippers and then the way that the issue is designed when she starts dancing, the colors, the style of drawing. I mean, it's all sort of really fantastic the way it comes together to sort of show this sort of like... And of course, it's a woman-forward issue. Yeah, this touches on a lot of the stuff we talked about in a game of you about like... And also, um, when we discussed Tale of Sand, like this like idea of like a woman's space and women's culture and like... There's a lot of discussion in this issue about the idea of, like, temples to feminine goddesses and divine prostitution and the yeah. idea of a matriarchy and, like, men's, like, a patri- men in a patriarchal society being, like, afraid of, like, sex and women's sexuality. But let's put a pin in that because we have to talk about what happens when they get out and they decide and they realize that Ruby isn't there and they need someone to drive the car and what happened? Because to me, this is like the most ridiculous thing that you could ever do. Oh, it's a, also it's 100% like, um, what is the term people use a lot? Like, like a Gilligan cut? Because it's like, <laughs> Delirium's like, I get to drive. And da- and Dream's like, no. And then it cuts, cuts to her driving. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... And then she's obviously really bad at it. So there's only one solution. Got, to the problem. I love this because it's like Dream is like who is who do I know that drives? Well, Matthew was a person; he probably drove. But like this Lush, is also the very Lucian like, is actually a person. Yeah, Lucy. We, <laughs> yes, we Lucian is, and Kate and Abel are actually people. Yeah, but they're all from ancient times, right? It's, we know that Lucian is at least from like before the 14th century. I think this is a hundred percent putting Matthew in there so they can make that joke about when he goes to the strip club. Uh, yeah, I love Matthew. Matthew is like so. We were talking about how much how great Merv is, and Matthew is like a similar character, but he's the new guy, like who who's just kind of going along with it. Like he will eventually, if he stays in the job long enough, become like Merv. But now he's just kind of like up for anything. This is also the clearest indication. This is the closest that I think the comic ever comes to straight up saying Matthew the Raven is Matthew Cable from Swamp Thing because they talk. When they can pull over by the the uh, trooper, the state trooper, um, delirium curses him to have invisible bugs crawling all over him, which is terrifying. And then he ends when, up in a mental hospital. Yeah, but when Matthew shows up, he's like, "She's like, oh, I put invisible bugs on that guy." And Matthew's like, "Ah, oh, you know, I had to deal with those guys before. That sucks." <laughs> And then he mentioned, Dream's like, do you know how to drive? And he's like, well, I did kill myself drunk driving, so. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, oh, those are super, if you've read Sandman, I mean, if you read Swamp Thing, then it's like, yeah, okay, he 100% is definitely Matthew Cable. Because the demon that he had to deal with appeared as an invisible fly, because it was like Beelzebub, Mm -hmm. as we see in the earlier Sandman issues in Hell. And he died in a drunk driving accident. Like, he's definitely... There's no doubt in my mind that that character is Matthew Cable now. And he's also a very good driving instructor, apparently. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, he sits on Delirium's shoulder and pretty fruitlessly tries to give her instructions on how to drive. And she keeps asking him questions. And then at some point, she wants to stop and get out and jump up and down. Because they both saw 101 Dalmatians. But, like, he's like, that's not a great idea to do on the freeway. 
Maybe don't do that. And then Dream is just sitting, like, in the passenger seat. Like, nothing's... Like, this is totally normal. Like, this is how mm-hmm. Yes, my pet raven that used to be a human <laughs> is instructing my sister... Lady Delirium. Lady Delirium on how to drive this antique car <laughs> that we got from a go- an ancient Babylonian god who has become a travel agent. And we're on our way to a strip club to yeah. meet another god. To find the, go- the, goddess, the goddess of love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, no, Matthew's great. I really like him when he's the, like, uh, you know, the fish out of water, like, point of view character. Like, he was really good at that in the Parliament of Rooks story. Yeah, definitely. So, and then also, the strip club is called Suffragette City. Yes, which is, it is. <laughs> it's a very nice There's cast. a lot of music references in this. Ishtar dances to her through the grapevine. She gets upset when she hears Under Pressure. What is the song she's dancing to at the end, though? Do you remember? Um, I can flip to it. I mean, we can cover it when we talk about that when we get to that part. But it's almost like, you know, there's lots of music references in Sandman, and it's like he wasn't doing any of them, and he's like, oh, shit, this is issue five. Let me put all of them in here. Yeah, it doesn't really say. It just sort of... It, it doesn't give you any of the lyrics? No, it sort of says that it's... The music begins a low, menacing bass. Ishtar nods in approval. Calling Sister Midnight, I'm an idiot for you. And she begins her last dance. So I don't know if that's a reference to the song. So what happens is there, there's a group of strippers that work at oh, the club. Oh, it's Iggy Pop. It's Sister Midnight it's, by Iggy oh, Pop. Oh, okay. Duh. Okay. So, yeah. So she dances to... That makes total sense. So these that's strippers are... weird are, song description. I guess they're depicted that they're strippers and that's their job, but... So there's three of them. There's Tiffany, who is a runaway. Right. And there is Nancy, I think. Is is that her name? Who is a woman studies major. And her plan is to uh, do this until she's old and then write a tell-all book about it and go on Donahue and maybe Oprah. Yeah, and I think it's sort of meant not to depict them as like objectified women, but they're women that are intellectual they're um liter you know they're literate they're um aw- self-aware and they have this really complicated and complex relationship where they're friends and they're co-workers but they're also competing for resources but they have this conversation with Ishtar where they start talking about temple prostitution yeah and it and it's clear that they don't know that Ishtar is a goddess no but they start talking about it and then she herself while they're having this conversation about the concept of temple prostitution which is where in the greek temples women would go to the temple and they would have sex with men men would choose them and they would have sex with them as a um offering to the goddess of love and that you know whatever happened at the temple was separate from what happened in in their normal lives and how i guess sort of showing that like ishtar at one point was worshipped and now she's fallen out of favor yeah also i think it's supposed to be mesopotamian not greek because ishtar she's identified as ishtar uh astarte and belili i think okay i'm not super familiar with belili obviously that's i believe the same reference as the belit character in um american gods but ishtar is like a Mesopotamian goddess, and Astarte is the Greek form of that god. Right. It's so, like the Hellenized version. 
So I guess because her cult that worshipped her is no longer existent, she has become this dancer as a way to sort of get sort of implied worship. So she dances and her dances are so powerful because of her godlike powers and these men become entranced and she gets the kind of, you know, adoring worship that she needs to maintain her life as a goddess. Yeah. And then it's also, it gets at this idea that like, because they bring up that this temple prostitution thing is actually, is something that would only happen in a matriarchy because otherwise men would be too fearful and controlling of the idea of sexuality. And there's this idea that's brought up early on in the issue by Tiffany where she's like, why are you doing, why are you dancing here? Like, why aren't you like a professional dancer somewhere? And it's this idea that like, we, society has like pushed away and like ghettoized this idea of the like sexual and sensual. So it's like, she could be a professional dancer, but it wouldn't be the same thing as what she's doing here. And even though this like strip club seems kind of seedy, it's the closest thing that exists in our culture to the thing that she used to do and represent. Like, our mainstream culture has, like, pushed sex away into the corners. Yeah. And I think that I what's really interesting to me is the, the sign of this issue. Because there's this one where it's, you know, a group of panels and it shows Ishtar dancing. And it's very graphic. Yellows and oranges and It reds. almost looks like uh, a more colorful, like, Sin City. Yeah. Like, and it's then, that very flat, shadowy... What were you going to say? But I, I feel like... As, like, the dancing becomes more frenetic, the artwork becomes more sort of kind of, like, um, baser. It becomes more graphic, less, like, representational, almost to the abstract. It's like, uh, you know, like a Picasso painting. And it's very dramatic, and there's all these different um, kind of cuts to the strip. Like, you know, it's the, what do they call them? The panels. Yeah. The panels are, you know, this is the thing with Sandman. They have a lot of different avant-garde styles to the panels. But they become almost like shards. And then you, when you're reading it, you kind of read it in a flash. Yeah. So. So, if, like, the parts where she's not dancing, like, earlier on in the issue are, you know, the art is more realistic. The, like, colors are very low contrast. Like, kind of washed out. All the panels are traditional squares and rectangles. And then when she starts dancing, it does become this, like, very high contrast with spot coloring thing. Like you said, it gradually becomes more abstract. The panel shapes shift and change. It reminds me a lot of what, um, was it Sam Keith in the doll's house? Like, the stuff with, oh, no, no, not not the doll's house. I forget which issue it is. I think it's Sam Keith in the first volume where he, the dreams use weird non-standard panels. Right. But the regular mundane world uses like just a traditional grid. It's a same, similar kind of technique. But it's almost, eventually it becomes to the point in the dancing where there are no panels. Right. And it's up to you to parse out where time is like. Yeah. And it kind of almost moving. even looks like an Andy Warhol print. Yeah, yeah. It's very flat. And it's very, like, graphic. But it's interesting. So it interesting. moves from the illustrative to the representational. Exactly. But it's interesting that when... That might be bullshit. <laughs> no. 
That sounds that sounds legit. Sounds legit. I'm very good at saying something that sounds legit, but maybe doesn't actually make any sense. So, but one of my favorite parts is when they try to get into the strip club, and they're like, "You guys can't bring oh, a girl really and a, a, a little bird. a little girl and bird." And then like Dream says, "You see us as three regular guys," and then, like, and then we see them as three regular guys, <laughs> and it's like. Dream has like a baseball cap on, yeah. and, and Matthew is like a little tiny man. <laughs> it's funny that he doesn't look like he did when he was a person. I mean, that's like a thing he brings up in the Parliament of Rooks, where he's like, "I'm a bird now. Like, I was a dude. I am a bird." But like, not gonna Delirium is just like a regular guy wearing like a polo shirt. <laughs> it's just. I like that. It's like that's what that guy thinks normal dudes look like. <laughs> they look like that. <laughs> and then I guess like. The magic is still going on in the club, and the women are still sort of projecting this sort of abstract view. So when Dream shows up and he's in the club, he's also depicted in that way. Yeah, yeah. And then as he starts talking to the women, you know, the panels go back to a more traditional style, and he goes back to looking more like his original Dream. Yeah, they do an interesting thing where there's a very clear visual cut off between the like main floor of the club and the back room like and the where the, everybody's like preparing or whatever like right. once you pass through that you pass back into mundane reality yeah and when they're dancing there's yellow and red and peach and you know these really bright colors and then when they're not dancing it's back to like blue and gray and white and then once he talks to Ishtar and she decides that she's done with this and she has her final dance, like, it just explodes in color and just... Oh, I also wanted to shout out... Until a... literally it explodes and she blows up the club. Yeah, it's a very, like, Salome's last dance sort of thing. Um, there's also the part before they go to the strip club where they tell Matthew they're going to the strip club and he's like, oh, I used to love those places when I was a dude. <laughs> my, life, my wife was totally fine with it and then like, there's a beat and he's like, I mean, I don't know if she would have, probably wouldn't have been fine with it if she knew. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, you so know what, dude, you know your that wife me. left you for Swamp Thing so like, don't be too hard on yourself. But you know like Matthew was a creep. Like, yeah. you really see like this sort of, to- he's toxic masculinity that has been re- reformed yeah. or is on his way to be reformed. well he seems to like it once he gets there even as a bird well there's <laughs> nothing actually wrong with like going to a strip club it's just he was a creep when he was alive because he says like when he's a bird and matthew like morpheus is like matthew let's go and he's like like 10 more minutes and then you see him like as a bird just sitting on the stage watching <laughs> <laughs> like watching like ishtar do her dance yeah, so Dream and Ishtar have a conversation, uh, which is nice because she calls him out for being kind of a misogynist. She's like, you really don't like women, do you? Which is like the thing we talked about, all that stuff of like, that I don't like in the series about him being like, I have to learn to forgive the women that have wronged me. Yes. Like, this feels like, over the course of the series, it feels like Neil Gaiman has become more mature, and we get a really nice moment where Ishtar calls Dream out for his bullshit. But I think... It's hard for Morpheus to realize that he technically is living in a matriarchy. Only he doesn't realize it. Like, when the kindly ones show up, then you're like, okay. It's, yeah, they it's have power ladies. over his destiny. Yeah, ladies are ruling. Death is more powerful than he is. So. But he's just, like, he's a very... He's, he's not the worst kind of dude, but he is that, like, kind of guy that you meet when you, like, 
join the drama club or hang out with artists who's like, I'm sad and please comfort me. And it's like, fuck off, dude. Fuck off. And it's nice to see somebody actually say that to him. As much as I like Dream as a character, he does kind of suck. My favorite part of this whole thing is this this page. I have the E version, so I don't know what page number it actually is. But it's just three panels. And it's Ishtar dancing. And in the first panel, she's sort of curling around like she's almost like a galaxy. Mm-hmm. And then it shows a picture of the suffragette city and all these lights are shooting out of it. And then the final panel is her like screaming. Yeah. And she's just black and yellow. And then you can see almost like the the, the black has like etchings in it that almost look like galaxies. And then in the back of her is like rubble. And all it says is girls, girls. And all the girls panels are like broken up. Yeah. Like she's just totally destroyed like the patriarchy in like one blast yeah, and in that first panel there's a cool thing where in the first panel sh- the background behind her is like just black and white and then in that last panel where she's screaming all the rubble is like this washed out red color yeah, yeah. I but, mean it's really I mean you could a lot of care has been put into the visualization of what is going on in this yeah and I think it's interesting and I think it's like almost like a sad end but in a way, for Ishtar, it's for her to leave on her own terms, which I think is important. Well, which, by the end of the story, will become a very important theme. Yes. So the issue ends with Tiffany has escaped. Yeah, the she club. meets Desire. She meets Desire, and he, they are they. Yeah, they. But they're in a very masculine it's aspect extremely, at this time. And then later on, she actually says, "The man who rescued me." She calls him. She calls him an angel. Who the angel that gave me an Armani jacket to keep me. Yeah. So. Desire sucks, but man, I love Desire. But I, then you realize that even though the other Endless had said, oh, we don't care if you find destruction or not, they are, in a peripheral way, concerned about what happened. Yeah, this is also the first hint that we get that this is this whole thing is not one of Desire's schemes. Yeah. Like, they, they're they not manipulating these events. They're, they're as much a, a, you know, caught up in them as anyone else is. Yeah. Where I think early on in the story, like, as things start to move, I was, part of me was kind of like, wait, is Desire manipulating all of this? Do they know that this is going to happen? And then this scene and one later, you're like, no. So, so that was the end of the chapter five. Chapter six starts with destruction. He's sitting under a tree and he's writing poetry. He's writing a very bad poem <laughs> about, what is it called? The Basilisk and Cockatrice, a moral poem. Yeah. That's pretty much when Barnabas rips into him and says, like, your poetry is just as bad as your painting. <laughs> yeah. Their, their dynamic is really good. I like them all. Obviously, Barnabas is, like, the friend that always tells you the truth. Yeah. Like, he just really, he has no filter. He just, he's like Destruction's Matthew, I guess. He is, kind of. So, so then Dream decides things are not going well and he doesn't want to go on the trip anymore and he wants to go home. He says this is the worst trip I've ever been on. Yeah. Well, he realizes that their people are dying or whatever or disappearing and it is because they are looking for destruction. And so he decides to cut it off, much to Delirium's dismay. So he goes back home. She gets upset. And then he's sitting sort of moping around in his giant castle. These are some of my, visually, uh, during this part, are some of my favorite depictions of the dreaming. Like, uh, 
Thompson does a lot with like opening up the space and like playing with like how impossible the proportions of everything are. Like we're I'm looking at a page right now where he's like in a courtyard and there's like space above him. It's really cool. Yeah, you, you can see like Saturn, like you, so you know, like his living room has sat. It's big enough to have Saturn yeah. just sitting in there. And he's sitting on his really weird chair, and then he decides he's going to go see his good friend Bast, mm. who I guess in the issue where they were fighting over hell, she hinted that she knew where his brother was. Yeah, and he says he's not interested in that, but now he is. This is also when his return to dreaming is also where we get the part where. Uh, Merv is bad mouthing him, and then he walks in. <laughs> yes. Oh, Merv, that's like womp womp, like Merv. You also, know that. It's also very nice because he goes to the mat for Lucian. Because Merv is like, wow, why is he always like he's constantly talking to you? He used to be, he wouldn't talk to you for like decades. And when Dream shows up, he's like, yeah, but like when I was captured, everyone fled except for Lucian, who stayed behind to try and keep things together. And like, why wouldn't I trust him then? Which is very nice, like. Oh, he is growing and learning, and he knows how to be a... He understands loyalty and friendship. So maybe Dream has two friends, Hob and Lucian? He's got a couple friends. He does have Hob and Lucian. But Lucian's... It's like a weird thing, because he's also Lucian's boss. It's weird to be friends with your boss. Yeah, I guess so. So he decides he's going to go to see Bast to see if he can find out what's going on. And, of course, she, like, immediately is... Partially distracted and then partially... He recreates the city of Bubastis for her. Right. And it's kind of like sadder than I think he thinks it's going to be. Yeah, because she's kind of like... It's just reminding her of what she lost. And she picks up like a, a, a the dream of a ghost of a cat. Right. Which and I guess is a reference to... Dream of a Thousand Cats. Yeah. So she kind of thinks like, oh, maybe he's here to like have a relationship with her or maybe just have cat I think she's sex. just kind of fuck with him I don't th- like think that she actually thinks she under I think she understands why he's there she just wants to mess with him because why wouldn't you want to mess with him but I think it's interesting that while they're having this conversation he Morpheus manifests as the traditional view of Morpheus and as he's talking to Bast he starts to take on more like feline characteristics yeah, and towards the eye. end he actually really looks like a cat yeah first his eyes change and then like yeah by the end he's got a cat head I also think that the thing with Bast and Bubastus is kind of a callback to uh, Ramadan like this idea of like this was my city and now it's been destroyed and like holding on to it in a dream really is not the same thing as it's still existing. Yeah, I thought it was like kind of weird too where at the one point where he starts just petting her and then they cut back to where they said like she's in her sleeping place and then you you look and she's just a regular cat. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of sad and weird. But yeah, has- and it ends with this whole thing where she's like she somebody's praying for her because her cat was is injured but the cat's gonna die so she gives it like a peaceful death right it's like the effort tires her and it's like bast is getting old but that's another sort of prelude or sort of primitive kind of fledgling Mm. kind of concept of what's happening later on in american gods yeah and it's also building up these themes that have been recurring through this story of like the inevitability of death and change and time and like accepting your 
coming fate or rebelling against it. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that do to you when you do those things? And it becomes pretty clear that, like, pretty soon Bast is going to have to return to the Dreaming, as all gods do when they, they pass away. Right. But I kind of feel like that wouldn't be so bad for her because she has a connection to Morpheus. Yeah, yeah. So then it cuts back, and that's the scene with Merv where he gets chewed out for talking about his boss behind his back. And then he Dream is talking to Lucian, who tells him that Delirium's... Oh, her sigil has gone black in right. the gallery. And I think that's him, like he often does, like trying to nudge Morpheus into the direction to make the right decision. Because Morpheus is like, I don't care. I don't want to be bothered anymore. But then Lucian says, like, look, her sigil is black. You need to do yeah. something. It's an interesting thing because it's like, there's a lot of stuff with Dream where you have to wonder how self-aware he is. Like, does he specifically talk to... Because he goes and then he, he talks to Death. He will, oftentimes does the same thing that Lucian does. Like, they both understand that, like, he's incredibly stubborn. And if you want him to do the right thing, you kind of have to push and prod him in the right direction. And I think just like a sibling, she says to him, what did you do to her? Yeah. But I, you have to wonder, does is Dream aware of that? Does he deliberately go to talk to Lucian and Death because he knows they'll put, make him do the right thing? I think so. I think because he's stubborn mentally in, in sort of going... It's, it's hard for him to make that transformation from the dream that we saw when he was captured. Yeah. To this new sort of modern free thinking, believing in free will, you know, compassionate dream that we see now. Yeah, yeah. So she convinces him to go to Delirium's realm, which is a great, big, chaotic, crazy world. Lots of real visual, cool, visually interesting stuff here. It's like collage. Yeah, Yeah, it's a collage. And like in the narration, there's a lot of like. It, I don't know if it is him literally doing cut-up stuff, or it's just supposed to feel like that, but it does feel like like kind of William S. Burroughs-y sort of cut-up poetry. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I guess he goes there, he has a heart-to-heart with Delirium. He apologizes. He apologizes. That's very humbling for Morpheus to have to apologize. And he reveals that the reason that he went with her initially, and the reason why he insisted they travel through the waking world... Was out of this, and it's so sad and like so real and pathetic. He thought that maybe he would get to see his ex girlfriend. Yeah, that idea, like, because I know so many dudes have been like, "Oh, I went to this party I didn't want to go to because I thought maybe this girl would be there, and then she'll see me and she'll be jealous that I'm yeah. doing so well." Or yeah, or she shows up and you just don't talk to her because you're too scared and sad. Like it was like, oh yeah, of co- of course that's what you were doing, Dream. Of course. <laughs> You fucking dork. <laughs> well, he can't write too much poetry. I mean, but I now think he's... The, the Endless have a problem with writing bad poetry. Yeah. That's like their thing. But the thing with Dream is he doesn't, he just, make, he just makes people do it, write it for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they, he now, now he's fully invested. Now he's actually, well, we'll talk about what his motivations might be later on. But like, it seems like now he's genuinely motivated by a desire to, to help his sister. Yeah, so then we see, it starts the new chapter, chapter 7, and you see um, destruction is, it looks like in the beginning he's indulging another one of his creative um, activities. He's going to cook this giant meal, but it turns out he's cooking this meal because he knows that... Delirium and Dream are coming. Yes. He also gives his dog some chocolate, which like apparently is fine if you're a magic talking dog, but it's no good if you're a regular (laughs) not magic dog. Yes, so... 
don't give your dog chocolate even if he tells you he wants it. <laughs> so they show up and I guess this is like delirium is kind of her most abstracted. This is when they go to see Destiny, right? Right. She's kind of like I think she's her most like mentally fragmented at this point. She's yeah. kind of like demoralized a little bit about trying about her quest not going the way that she wants and then being in her own realm when she comes back out she's she's more she looks rougher, you know, she yeah. has like a crew cut and she's wearing raggedy clothes. And so then she has the envelope and they decide they're going to go see Destiny. But they, this is, I think this is interesting because they need to go through a maze to get to him. Because all mazes are the same maze and Destiny's garden is a maze. So they start out in this, because I think this is fitting for Delirium because she's kind of chaotic and there's... This sort of passive joy that you get from her. So they start out in a carnival maze, and then as they're going through the maze, it turns into Destiny's maze, and they end up in his garden, and they they find him. And time is all weird in his garden, and they see a vision of Delirium when she was Delight in like way way ancient times, which probably is not also not great for her emotional state at this moment but i think it's interesting that maybe destiny is like the family historian yeah because he's keeping all these mementos in his garden because you also see in the background a statue that may or may not be desire well there's a part where they're talking to destiny they're standing in front of i think it's just statues of all the yes yeah and at one point we see delirium sitting at the feet of her own statue yeah so yeah. So then, of course, they're like, ugh, I knew you were coming because I know everything. I'm mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I'm the big brother. You... Yeah. yeah I, I got a giant book. I think Destiny is the saddest character in the story. It's so, he's so sad. Like, he just wants his family to be together, and he can't. He just gotta. He can't just say it. He has to, like, do all these weird things. And they have this long conversation, right? About. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as he's as Delirium is talking to Destiny, she's almost like settling. Her hair starts to grow. She grows in shape. She's more adult, less childlike. Her clothing starts to be repaired. So it's almost like talking to him is like helping her. Yeah, sort of like gel together what she's her thoughts, which I think is interesting. And then ultimately, what Destiny tells them is like. You need an or like this idea comes up over and over again. Like you need an oracle, but there's no oracle that can tell you about the endless. Right. And then finally, Destiny has to, and it's unclear how much of this is him, like just flat out telling Dream this, and how much of this is like him make like it's unclear if he's like this is what it is, or if he is by saying this is what it is saying you have to stop ignoring this because what he says to Dream is. There's only one oracle. There's an oracle that is of the family. Very clear immediately. He's talking about Orpheus. And Dream has a total breakdown. I think what's interesting is when Destiny has his remembrance of destruction, he's once again at a family meeting. Yeah, he remembers the family meeting where destruction says, I'm leaving. And it's very similar to the meeting he called in the beginning of um, Season of Mists. Yeah. So. And this is what? This is supposed to be 17. No, this is supposed to be 1692 when this happens. They said that he's been gone for 300 years. Yeah. 
And they're all, like, in period of over clothing, except for Despair, who's naked, and Destiny, who's dressed like a monk. Because he's always <laughs> dressed like a monk. But he has a gray monk coat on this time. Yeah. Dream and... Delirium. Delirium have to go to the temple where Orpheus is. Oh, well, you glossed over the part where Delirium comes fully together once Dream loses it. And has to act, like, acts completely irrational... And collected and kind of choose destiny out. And that's when she says the thing about, like, you don't... There's some stuff that you just don't know. Like, there are, are paths that don't lead here. And that's what I'm for. Right. And, like, she, she... There's this really, like, sweet and moment where she's, like... She has to pull herself together because Dream has come apart. And it's, like, hard for her. And, like, she mentions, like, oh, it, it hurt. And there's this, like, just silent panel of Dream looking at her. And it's like... Yeah, and I think it's... I mean, you can see this because now Delirium has manifested. Like, she's a woman, but she's very small. And she has yeah. long orange hair. And she's wearing, like, an 80s businesswoman suit. But it's really big on her because she's, like... Yeah, it's very, like a stop-making-sense yeah. burn suit. <laughs> yeah, and as she's on the island and as she is... Wait, Dream goes in to talk to his son. You don't see their interaction. Yeah. And, which, and then you see... Delirium interacting with the family that's the gatekeepers of this temple. And then she eats these cherries and she lays down on Lady Constantine's um, grave. And she sort of, as she's doing this, she's like growing. She's getting larger and she's getting older. So by the time that Dream comes out, she's like a young adult at yeah. that point. Yeah, and we don't see what Dream's conversation with Orpheus is at the moment. Right. But and he this, does not look, he does not seem okay when he comes out of it. Yeah, so then, spoiler alert, Orpheus tells him where destruction is, and wouldn't you know it? He's like, he's right next door. <laughs> but that's the thing, we, we talked about this, you were like, oh, you don't have to be a great detective to figure out where destruction is. But I think, like, we'll talk about this more, but I don't, I wonder if, there's a way to read this story where Dream has always known where destruction is. I think so. And, and I he think doesn't want to go there because he is avoiding his son. Yeah, because he says that. He, he, in exchange for the information, he has agreed to pay a boon. Yeah. And they don't tell you what it is, but you, you're kind of like, ugh, you get a bad feeling, you know what it is. It was, yeah. But I think, to go back to this point about the detective, I think we know that Dream is just slightly better detective than Constantine. Yeah, we, yeah, we do know that. That is true. That's a, that is canonical. He is a slightly better detective than Const than both Constantines. Yes, both Constantines. And looks much better in a trench coat than... Um... Oh, so I wanted to say this. So Lady Constantine's grave is on the island where Orpheus' shrine is. I think that's... Which, like, implies... Again, it makes me even more disappointed in Thermidor because it implies this much grander relationship between the two characters I think that's than why we got to see. I think that's why she's buried there. Yeah. There's a story we don't know, but for some reason, her wish to be buried next to Orpheus. Yeah, and I wish we had gotten to see more of that. And also the cherries that she plucks from the tree that hangs over Lady Constantine's grave become important later on in the story when she once again meets with where delirium meets with despair yeah 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 i think that's interesting i would like to have known what what point got her 
there, her mm. grave to be there. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So they go over to the island and they meet Barnabas, and then the brother's like, "Oh, you finally made it! I cooked all this food." And they then won't once eat a- any of his food. And once again, it's a family dinner. Yeah, another awkward family dinner. Um, Dream wants Barnabas to not be there, and then destruction settles for Barnabas can be here, but he'll just be quiet. Yeah. And none of nobody will eat any of Destruction's food, and so he ends up feeding it to the dog. But the dog <laughs> likes it, so that's fine. It's the one thing that, that Destruction has made that the dog likes. It's a very sweet moment. Yeah. But I think... So, that's the end of that. Like, it just shows up, and then it's like, to be continued. Yeah. And then you get a chapter oh, eight, okay. and you're like, oh, okay. It literally says, to be continued. Yeah, yeah. It's like on a panel of Delirium's <laughs> face, right? Well, it's like the table set. Oh, oh no, that's, a, that's the next issue, I think, actually. Yeah, so then it goes to chapter 8, and they're sitting down to have... Yeah, this is when the dinner happens. And you know what I think is interesting, too? This depiction of delirium in this chap- in chapter 8, she looks a lot like death. Yeah, she, she does. She has, like, red hair, but she has that same, like, you know, like, same Robert like... Smith cure hairdo. And she's got the leather jacket on, but, you know, she's not colored in the same way. Yeah, so her clothes are white, and, like, she's got a little... She kind of looks halfway between Death and Desire, because she's got the, like, flat drawing style that Desire has, but she looks more like Death, and, like... But then she's got red hair, like, destruction. Yeah, and then, like, as the conversation continues, she starts to physically change. She becomes, like, her hair pops out and it's the yellow and pink and then it becomes a crew cut. So she starts like rapidly changing yeah. as the conversation goes on between this really intense conversation where Destruction is telling the reason why he wanted to leave. Yeah, so Destruction brings up that Delirium has changed and she's grown. He brings up that Dream has changed. Dream denies vehemently that he has changed at all. Um, destruction, basically what he reveals is that despair died and was someone else took on the mantle of an aspect of despair and became despair. Right. And that's when he said he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want to make anyone else have to be destruction. And so he took all his stuff and he left to go do something else and... Destruction still kept happening in the same way that dreams still kept happening while Dream was captured in the bottle, but he's just not in control of it anymore and doesn't really see why anyone needs to be in control of it anymore. And I think it's interesting, too. This is like the only flashback with Destruction, because then Destruction tells a story about he and Death, a conversation they had, where that endless did not start the the flashback so death is not there mm-hmm. but this is death's flashback Except death is always there yes and death is i mean death's there death's out of at the back of somebody in this scene i'm not gonna say who it is just yet so yeah that you know i wanted to bring that up when we get to the next chapter so he's telling this story and for some reason it's like a space themed and he's wearing like this red. He looks like a superhero. Yeah, like a red superhero outfit, and she's wearing like this sort of like eighties, like princess, yeah, like, legendy sort of. I, there's this thing where there's the we see them at some points, the endless in specific points in recorded history, 
But there's also this, like, mythical past that we see. Because, like, when we see the vision of Delight in Destiny's Garden, she's in a weird space outfit, too. Where it's this idea that, like, I don't know if it's supposed to be them on alien planets, or it's just, like, in the mythical ancient past, they didn't, they were not attached to any sort of human culture. And they looked like weird superhero space opera Jack Kirby characters. So, so they they have this very elaborate conversation and they don't really try to dissuade destruction. Delirium but, does. Right. But I think in the end they just ultimately just let him go. Yeah. Like he literally packs his sigil in a bindle and just like hobos into outer space. He leaves beyond the realm of Earth to a place where Barnaby will not survive so he gives him Barnabas will not survive so he gives him to Delirium. And that pays off a thing that Delirium brings up really early in the story where she's like everybody's got their pets. Despair has rats. Dream has uh, Death has her goldfish. Um, Dream's got Matthew. And she doesn't have a pet. And she's given Barnabas by uh, destruction. And there's this really nice moment where he tells Barnabas to like look after her. And it's like this like kind of like you know what, You're, I got a big responsibility for you, man, that you got to do. And that's why you can't come with me, because you got to do something important. But it's almost like Han Solo and Chewbacca. <laughs> they are, yes. Because, like, Delirium saying, like, one day I'm going to be a kangaroo. And then Barnabas is like, yeah, that's cool. Like, he, like, understands her, despite her, like, mismatched. Because obviously what's in her brain and what she's saying don't match up. Yeah. But for some reason, Barnabas, like, can see right through that and be like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I mean, it's he's been not dealing actually with... about kangaroos. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's been dealing with destruction for. But I like this sort of hobo imagery of like destruction where he's got his bindle and he takes like these steps up into the sky. And as he's taking a step, he becomes more and more like a constellation. Yeah. So by the time he gets to the top of the ladder, he is like a star. Yeah. And it's cool because it's, it's one long panel, but then each step he's in is like in a box inside of the panel that's another really cool visual thing him wrap because when he when you say he wraps up his sigil in a bindle he wraps up the whole room that it's in and the scrying pool right in a handkerchief and puts it on a stick and it's a really neat visual like very trippy visual uh representation of him packing up right and then you get this sort of visualization of morpheus where it's almost like traditional he has his black wavy hair his black suit the blue kind of cloak with his giant like medallion and then she's sort of in that business suit but that business suit has morphed almost into a cape yeah so this is like jill thompson's drawing of dream in this story is the one that i imagine when i imagine the character oh definitely like him with the like frizzed out hair and like either the trench coat or the cape and like she everybody draws him with like the shadows over his eyes but she does an interesting thing where I don't know if it's her or the Daniel Vazza, the colorist, but there are, like, blue, like, lights shining out of the shadows in his eyes at certain scenes where he's expressing emotion. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. Um, he also seems like, in this one, he is also the most wearing a superhero outfit because his underclothing of his cape is this really tight-fitting sort of mock turtleneck that's, yeah. like, a blue-colored. I think that's because he's, like... Destruction keeps being like, oh, you're more human than you think, and you've changed, and you've grown. And I feel like that is a visual representation of Dream trying to present himself as being less human than he actually is, and denying 
that he's changed and grown. So he's like, wow, well, look at me. I couldn't possibly have changed. Look at how fancy my clothes are. And Destruction just completely sees through that. Yeah. But I wanted to say, the thing that... The flashback with Destruction and Death talking, what happens in that is they're talking about destiny and about, like, knowing things. And Death tell says to Destruction, everybody get, is as knowledgeable as destiny everyone actually does know everything but we have to convince ourselves that we don't because that's the only way we can deal with it i think yeah i I think when you were talking about destiny being the saddest character one of the reasons why i think he's so sad is because he sabotages himself yeah you see in there when he's talking when he's when they're visiting in the garden and he's talking to delirium and dream and after they leave he reads ahead in the book yeah and he gets sad. Yeah. But I feel like if he would have done what he was supposed to, which is to watch that book and read it in real time, he might not have such a tragic yeah. life. But he chooses to read ahead is so he knows what happens. And I can't tell, and maybe you can figure it out, is he sad because he's sad for Dream or is he sad because he's sad for Orpheus? I don't know. I think he's sad for Dream. Um, is that, that when he looks ahead, that's when we see the Corinthian again, right? We get one panel of a vision of the Corinthian standing near Dream's throne with blood on it, talking to Dream, except Dream is all white. Yeah. But I kind of, I thought that might have been a reference to when Morpheus takes Corinthian back to the Dream world. But that might... Is a reference of things to come, I believe. But he... Corinthian doesn't do the deed. No, he doesn't. But I mean, I think this is just something else that's going to happen. So maybe in the Corinthian is some kind of manifestation of the impulses of Dream. I don't know. Let's get yeah. into it. Chapter nine. That, that that panel reveals that Destiny absolutely knows what Dream's destiny is. Chapter nine. You are definitely going to get the feelies. Oh, man, this one. This is a. It, it, we always say this, like, oh, this is a really hard issue. This is a really hard issue. Yeah, this is this is a this is a tough one. I read this last night, right before I went to bed, which was like not great. I got really emotional. So yeah, so we, well, so we, we find out that the boon that Orpheus. I mean, I was going to say spoiler, but this is issue seven. So if you haven't figured out, this is issue nine. No, but I mean, this is oh, volume seven. Volume seven. If you haven't figured out, like that, Sandman is a tragedy. Yeah. Like, yeah. So we figure out what his boon is. Because you can figure out, as soon as you... Oh, you know what it is. When you go to the first panel and you see these this family, this Greek, ancient Greek family, and you realize that they're going back to the shrine, you know what the boon was. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dream says it. He says, uh, he says at the end of the previous issue, right? Yeah. He's like, I have to go and kill my son. But I think it's interesting the visual way that this, like, that his grief is depicted with the red hands. It's very Shakespearean. It's very... Yeah, this is this is mega Shakespearean. He returns to... He, his inevitable fate has brought him back around to the same island where he, he last talked to his son. And he has to kill him. And they have this conversation together where... Dream expresses this, like, regret over like, his relationship with Orpheus and, like, not being able to 
to teach him the things that he needed to teach him, and, like, then he has to kill him. I also think it's... I think it's a nice touch that Delirium goes with him. Yeah. Like, she goes with him, and she talks to Orpheus, and she says hello. She shows him the dog she got. And she shows him the dog, and then she kind of, like, she knows what's going on, but she doesn't address it, and she just kind of, like... Goes outside to wait, to wait for, you know, Morpheus to do what he needs to do. And, you know, they have this conversation and it's the same old drudgery about, you said you wouldn't have anything to do with me, but yet here you are again and again Mm -hmm. and again. Because even though he says he wouldn't have anything to do with his son, he spends an enormous amount of emotional energy dealing with his son. Yeah. And he tells him, you know, you should have gone to the funeral. All of this would have... It goes back to the stuff he says to him in the Song of Orpheus about, like, go to the funeral and mourn, and that's what you do, and people die, and you get used to it, and, like, you're immortal, and, like, yeah. But it's kind of like they have this really heartfelt, honest conversation where Orpheus says, you know, I wish that things had been different, and then Morpheus says, you know, I also wish that, and he actually kisses him. and Yeah. And then there's just... <laughs> Just a panel of Death's Ankh, and yes. then Orpheus's head is dead. Yeah, and then Morpheus comes out, and his hands are red, which is kind of... Yeah, they're just, like, dripping blood. And then he's standing in the flowers. You know, he's it's very kind of graphic about what happened. And he's he's devastated, and she's trying to comfort him, and the dog is kind of being very smart. Yeah. About not saying anything. And then when you think that, like, death is going to show up. Despair shows up. Despair shows up. Because Dream is in despair. Like, he's trying not to show it, but it's, like, that panel, like, just the panel where she arrives is, like, devastating. Well, that's why I kind of... Because you're like, oh, he's destroyed. Like, what happened to him in Destiny's Garden is a fraction of what he's going through right now. And it's interesting because... She's there because he's in despair, but she's also comforting. And then Delirium is comforting despair, and she gives the flowers to her. Yeah, it's very... Which comes from the cherries from the tree that Lady Constantine is buried under. Yeah, and then despair expresses regret for not... A lot of regret in this issue. She expresses regret for not going on the journey with Delirium. And it's unclear if it's just because she wants to see... Wanted to see Destruction, who she misses... Or if because she thought that maybe if she had gone, it would have spared Morpheus from his the fate he now faces. I think it's interesting too because well, first of all, despair has the red blood spots on her face that are that are also reflected in these flowers that delirium gives her. And then there's a panel towards the end where she's back in her realm and she's offering the panel. She's offering flowers right out of the panel. And she says, I thought you'd still be here. Yeah, to Desire. And then it turns out that she's giving the flower to Desire, who I guess must have been watching dis- watching Dream's despair in the mirror in the realm that Despair lives yeah, in. Yeah, it's, it's really well structured. And then you, she's kind of like... So yeah, so if you remember from the doll's house, and from three Septembers in a January... Despair had this plan, I mean, Desire had this plan to make Dream kill one of the family, that being Rose. And then it ends up, well, yes, because then she realizes 
they realized desire that they had gotten what they wanted, but it was not the way that they wanted it. And yeah. then at the end, you see both of them holding hands, and it becomes despair pretty... says, "I'm scared," and desire says, "So am I." Yeah, because that it, you from the second dream is like I owe Orpheus a boon. I think if you've been paying attention to the story and how the mythology works, you know this. But I think by this panel, it becomes pretty clear that like dream is going to die. <laughs> He, this is, this is like, and I think this he is has when, sealed his fate. This is when he realized, because if he had any desire, any kind of idea in his head at some point that his son would take the realm from him, mm-hmm. it's gone now. And I think this is where he kind of, like you said, he has resolved himself. He knows what his fate is. Okay. So and, this is what, the reason I wanted to very specifically bring up the conversation, the flashback between destruction and death. So, oh, so in this, this also important in the scene with despair and desire is despair says you cannot seek destruction and return unscathed. And like delirium has been scathed enough. So she's like, fine. So it sort of flips this story and you're like, yes, this is a story about them seeking destruction. Dream seeks destruction and finds him. And then there's this idea that destruction brings up where it's like, we all know everything already. We know what's happening. So the question becomes... Did Dream know this was going to play out like this from the beginning and deliberately embark on this journey? Was this the story of Dream's suicide? Yeah, that could be right. But I kind of got the impression that knowing that they had to pay a price for seeking out destruction, he took that price on himself as opposed to making Delirium pay it, knowing that she emotionally couldn't pay it anymore. But I don't, I don't think there's an answer to this, but there is this question there where it's like, did he know he this was story was going to end with him killing Orpheus? Did, I mean, and did he know that from the second that Orpheus ended up on I that think, island? I kind of thought that maybe he did. That's why he went back home. Oh. Because he's kind of like impulse driven. And he was like, I'm already upset about losing my lady friend. I don't want to have to murder my son. Yeah. So... But I think it's interesting. So then he goes on and he tells Andros that he's free from his obligation. And he goes back to the dreaming world. And he enters through the back door. And the back door is a version of the front door, but it's scaled down. And it's and they don't recognize him at first. Yeah. But he also talks about how the gate is made from the bones of three gods that tried to usurp him. And that's where he... And then also how he forged this helm. Yeah, one helmet from the... One god he for- used their bones to forge the helmet. One god's bones was used to form the f- main gate, and the one the last god's bones were used to form this back gate. Right. So then he goes in, and then he meets Nuella, and then they talk about the stone that she's wearing, and he talks to Lucian, and he kind of is like, "I just need to be alone." And they, I kind of get the impression they're like, "Oh, he's still being like." Yeah, know. I don't think they realize what's happening yet. You know, they're talking about him like, "Yeah, he gets like that." You know, and they're working in the library. And then they show him going into his room and washing his hands, and then he sits down. And he has a vision, another vision of Orpheus as a young man in the. Oh, this is when they call back to the, the yeah. speech he gives him. He has a, a, in the blood in the water. He has a he vision of his conversation with the conversation he had with Orpheus before Orpheus went to talk to Destruction. Yeah, and then he's kind of like, if you would have just went to the funeral, nothing would happen. Yeah. But then I thought it was interesting that it ends with him like sort of hunched over, covering his eyes. 
But he's sitting like in an armchair. He's no longer in his throne. Yeah, he's, he's in his regular clothes. He has no shoes on, and he's sort of just like kind of collapsed in this chair. It's almost like a foreshadowing of. Well, yeah, like he is no longer a king. He's not going to be a king very long. And this is like now this once this story comes together, it makes all of the three all of the uh, distant mirrors stories make a lot more sense. Yeah, and then like it, oh, they were foreshadowing because Dream is a king who is going to die and is concerned about the future of his kingdom. Yeah, and then it cuts to the end, and it has the homeless woman from the beginning of the arc. She's sitting at a grave, and she's talking to death. And then it has the little girl from the airplane, and she's talking. She's thinking about her cat, because she was the one who prayed the bath. Yeah. And then it has K-Pax's son, who is burning the papers, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah, we also get a part of um, Andreas, the the Greek guy, who... Right. ...ferrying uh, Orpheus's head, and wondering if, like, perhaps the tree will because he there's a thing where in the very beginning he listens to Orpheus's song and he feels young again yeah. and he will so he's like maybe this tree will bear new fruit I'll eat it and I'll feel young again and it's like but he knows that he won't live to see right. the tree blossom again and like we get again get back to this like idea of inevitable fate and death and like your own awareness of your coming death and like what does that mean yeah and then you see the state trooper and he's in a mental hospital because of the bugs yeah and then you see tiffany and she's on a talk show which she said she wanted to be on where she's like a famous feminist historian she wrote a book about the destruction of suffragette city right and then that's when you get they go to the burial and then that's pretty much the end and then you know okay like we say every volume shit's about to get weird because the next three yeah, so the, the next volume is, what is the next, the next volume is another collection of stories. What is that one called? It's called, oh, I have it right here, I'm looking right at it. It's called World's End. Yeah, okay, World's End. It's up next, World's End, I have it written right on yeah, my notes. That's like the Canterbury Tales one, right? Yeah. We get so that's Pop good because, because you're like emotionally wrecked. Yeah. So this is kind of like a distraction and it's, you know. It's our last little bit of, like, these one-off stories, but they're a little more connected than the other ones. Yeah, and then and then The Kindly Ones, and then The Wake, which is the last volume. Right. And, like, yeah, um, I think it's... Knowing what happened in this issue and knowing that the last volume of this story is called The Wake, it's pretty clear what's yeah. about to happen. And I don't think that's a spoiler alert. This is, like, this moment in the story is when it reveals itself to have always been a tragedy in structure and theme. So overall, what did you think of this volume? It's interesting because not in, I keep saying interesting. This was the of the volumes that are one whole story. This was the one I remembered the least, but I ended up really liking it again. Reading it now, like I said, I really like the way they flesh out all of the endless and the relationships to each other. I think the build up to you know, you know how when we were talking about Game of You and Season of Mist, I was saying that gaming kind of has a problem with anti climax. Yeah. That is not a problem in this issue. Like, the build-up to that last page of Morpheus on the chair mm-hmm. in the shadows is so well done. I think this is, like, an incredibly well-structured piece of storytelling. I think the, like, the trick of being like, hey, you thought this was a, a, a serial, this was like a serialized comic fantasy? Nope. 
it was, this was a Greek tragedy the whole time is really well done. I think the like the payoff of all of the Orpheus stuff and all of the hints about destruction, the characters in the story finally acknowledging Dream's character arc is really nice. Like, I, I really like this volume a lot. Jill Thompson's art's great. She does a lot of cool sort of experimental stuff. It's not like as like wild and anarchic as some of the like Sam Keith or Kelly Jones art, but it's still pretty cool. It's almost like a halfway point between like that stuff and the Brian Talbot art from um August and the Song of Orpheus. Yeah. What did you think of this volume? I liked it. I like I like the Ishtar chapter. I like the story and I like the graphics of that. And I think the reason why it's not as popular as the Midsummer Night is because it's technically it's hard to understand it if you're not reading the entire series. Yeah, it doesn't really sit. So on it's own not a that. standalone. But I think that that's one of my favorite issues. I like. This is a really good issue. I like the cleanup and the finality of the Orpheus story arc. I'm glad that that's wrapped up, even though it was a sad. It's, it's but very it's, sad. It's really important to the personal growth of dream yeah because what happens next to dream could not have happened if he didn't go on this journey you know so. what's weird about this volume is the the kindly ones are not in it well, there is no recursion of the triple goddess at any point as far as i could tell the only closest thing i could find to the triple goddess was the three women with ishtar yeah, but, but they're not they're not the kindly ones. They're not. But this is what puzzled me because a lot of when you read about the issues, this is considered the second part of the kindly one trio. So it's with Doll's House, this, and then the kindly ones? Yeah, which doesn't make any sense to me. So obviously the kindly ones play a really big role in the Doll's House, right? And they're not in this at all. But this, I can see that because the this is setting up the plot of the kindly ones. The kindly ones is the payoff to what happens at the end of this and that the kindly ones is the payoff to all of these themes of like change and destruction and fate and destiny but other than that those these stories aren't super connected yeah i don't i don't see that i don't see it as connect i see other than like you said prefacing the end the sort of this is the point where you are from this point on you're 100 percent heading towards the end yeah. There's no more upward plot. Like, you're at the, the pinnacle of the plot point, and it's going down to the finale at this point. Yeah, yeah. I like the relationships. We talked about that in the beginning of the podcast. I like the sibling interaction. I think it's a really revealing. It's a sophisticated sort of storytelling. Just like a Neil Gaiman novel, you know, the character interactions are very important. Mm. Yeah, like I was saying, I think that's the most underrated aspect of Sam. People talk a lot about the mythology and cool stuff like the Midsummer Night Dream issue, but I feel like you don't hear that much about how, like, about the relationships between the Endless themselves and how fleshed out they are as, like, characters and as a family. It's, it's It works really well. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of excited to, to get to the finale to talk about what happens at the end. Yeah, me too. So. So, what's up next? Uh, next episode, we are going to talk about The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pinchon. So, put your smarty slacks on. Yeah, get your smarty slacks on. Um, and then after that, we're the next uh, episode after that, we're going to talk about uh, World's End. 
Yeah. So, Ooh, uh. I need to take an emotional nap after that. Yeah. Spoiler alert, stay tuned. And sweet dreams. Don't kill your son. Right. Good advice. <laughs> Oh, <laughs>